This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. You know, we broke schedule on Monday because we needed to, uh, because demand, uh, you know, events demanded it, and that's what this class should be doing, frankly. Um, and so today we're going to get a little bit back on schedule, but like. Um, I'm going to open with a bit of just a a kind of intro to what is neoliberalism. Now, I think a lot of you probably have a good sense of what that is, or you you have a, you hear that term a lot. And so I want to sort of give it uh, some substance and some kind of context. Um, And then, uh, then the majority, but I'm going to do that as, you know, with some efficiency. And then the remainder, the majority of the class will uh, be uh, Professor Jayaraman talking about low wage workers. But let me just start here. Um, in a discussion of neoliberalism with, uh, with this um, image uh, captured off of uh, CNBC on April 10th, 2020. Uh, and I think it sort of captures uh, the, the economic insanity that is this kind of current moment, right? Which is, uh, you know, the Dow has its best week since 1938 uh, and 16 million Americans have lost their jobs in three weeks. How is it that, that literally so many millions of Americans can lose their jobs catastrophically in the midst of a pandemic and Wall Street goes through the roof. Like the investment returns are through the roof. How does that happen? What's the, you know, it it seems a contradiction. Yes. Well, not quite. Um, And let's just be clear here that this, there's a lot of junk economic data out there. And it's a hard thing to sometimes get a grasp on. I, I give you also this one that appeared on Fox News on June 6th, 2020. And in case you were not convinced that modern neoliberal capitalism is a death cult, I offer you this, in which they put up data saying that the murder of prominent black people is good for the stock market. I have no explanation for this kind of, what does this mean? What, Why? <laughs> you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King was a nearly 3% gain for the stock market. This is important news for Fox that they want to have uh, their viewers consume. So there's, there's some bizarre under, you know, there's not only is there bizarre economic news, but there's bizarre economic analysis that is available to us as well. But it's quite clear that the economic conditions we're in right now are uh, desperate, to say the least. Um, these are two versions of the New York Times in which they had to literally use the entire front page in order to successfully illustrate the scale of the economic catastrophe we're in. Um, the, the collapse in terms of unemployment, job losses are literally off the charts. Um, we are in completely ungrounded economic territory at this point. Um, this was the New York Times headline, how bad is unemployment literally off the charts? It, is, it simply cannot be measured how catastrophic the job losses are. Indeed, we've seen that the GDP for the third quarter, um, actually, I don't remember which quarter, the second quarter, excuse me, uh, fell 9.5%, which translates to an annual GDP collapse of 32.9%. This is globally unprecedented. So the economy, the real economy, the jobs market, the wage market is in absolute freefall, and yet the stock market is soaring. Well, why? Well, the first answer is who owns stocks, which, mem- which portion of the American population is actually invested in the financial markets. And this chart from uh, this summer that was published by the Federal Reserve uh, from the first quarter 
of uh, uh, 2020 shows you that the top 1% of income earners own more than 50% of the stock in this country. The top 10% own well over three quarters of the stock in this country. And the bottom 50% of the American population own no stocks at all. Financial products of any kind, bonds, stocks, mutual funds, uh, any variety of financial services, the, the, the overwhelming majority of Americans are simply cut out of this. So what you see quite literally when the stock market is booming, but the job market is collapsing. Now, there's a lot to say, but on the surface, what it says on the one hand is that the recession is over for the ultra rich. It never really affected them in the first place. And indeed, coronavirus has been very lucrative for these people. Indeed, um, perhaps more importantly, though, is what we have the results of the bailout, that the CARES Act, um, the Corona Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, or the CARES Act, handed no less than $7 trillion to the largest corporations in America while allocating less than $600 billion uh, to the American people, the majority of whom got a $1,200 check back in the spring and haven't seen diddly since. What this means is that the stock market is soaring because the political system will keep it up. The political system will spend untold trillions of dollars to keep the stock market rising. It is simply politically untenable for the stock market to collapse. And what we have here then is a fundamental contra, and you can see uh, Professor Jairam and Art also already referenced this, but the rate at which billionaires are getting richer in this moment, right? The total wealth accumulated by billionaires has increased more than 20% since the pandemic began. And so we have a situation, right, in which the political project of neoliberalism, which I will come to in a moment, is in direct contradiction with its sort of philosophical claims. There's a philosophical belief within neoliberalism that markets should rule, that the free market should govern everything. Um, but if that were the case, then bailouts would not be on the table, especially bailouts of this scale. What we have instead is, I think, what David Harvey lays out for us, which is the reality of neoliberalism, which is that it is a political project in which ruling class elites have reclaimed and conquered political power through economic inequality. And so David Harvey gives us this clear definition. Uh, this is his book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism. He gives us this very clear definition of what neoliberalism is on page two. And I'll just cite this for you. And he, re he writes, neoliberalism is in the first instance a theory of political economic practices that propose that human well-being can best be advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong private property rights, free markets, and free trade. The role of the state is to create and preserve an institutional framework appropriate to such practices. The state has to guarantee, for example, the quality and integrity of money. It must also set up those military defense, police, and legal structures and functions required to secure private property rights and to guarantee by force, if need be, the proper functioning of markets. Furthermore, if markets do not exist in such areas as land, water, education, healthcare, social security, or uh, environmental pollution, then they must be created by state action if necessary. Beyond these tasks, the state should not venture. Um, I think it's a pretty concise definition of what is both a political philosophy and a mode of governance, a kind of what uh, Wendy Brown calls neoliberal logic or neoliberal reason of privatization, 
right? Uh, and the spread of the free market into areas in which it has not previously been dominated. Now, there's a whole intellectual history behind this, and we'll come to the political history of this next week. But what we're really talking about is fiscal austerity for state programs, right? Cut the budgets for education and mental health and housing uh, and social justice programs. And to then deregulate the economy so that private corporations have a greater hand uh, uh, to deal with, you know, to make their profits, to go where they want to, to deal with things like pollution and labor laws and the like. And then the mass privatization of public resources. We'll come to some, what that means for you at the very end here. But it also is attached to what we broadly know of as globalization. Right, the globalization of the capitalist economy of creating international supply chains, capital flows, and industrial capacity. But of course, famously, as capital can move across boundaries within neoliberalism, people overwhelmingly cannot. So whereas capital can go where it wants to, neoliberalism builds borders and walls and, and fortifies them with the military. David Harvey then goes on to explain that neoliberalism holds that the social good would be maximized by maximizing the reach and frequency of market relations, and it seeks to bring all human action into the domain of the market. Now, this is an explicit turning away from the post-World War II consensus that sat within the realm of what is broadly known as Keynesian economics, uh, behind a belief in full employment, controlled and regulated economic growth, social welfare programs, and a focus particularly upon international cooperation. The real goal of all of this was to prevent another war, right? Another World War II scale war. Keynesian economics, uh, named after the British economist John Maynard Keynes, was designed to control markets, a, rec a recognition that the capitalist free market, if left to its own devices, will crash in periodic and regular crises of accumulation, whether financial, industrial, or otherwise. And the need was to prevent another Great Depression by using state interventions to prevent capitalist markets from imploding under the weight of classic capitalist crises of uh, overproduction. Capitalism, as we know, when left more or less unregulated, will go through boom and bust cycles. It is never a steady, you know, uh, singular growth. It moves in these big cycles of boom and bust. And Keynesian economics was very much dedicated to trying to regulate that. So they tamed financial speculation. Uh, they they uh, insisted on um, large union participation in the economy. Um, and they sought to essentially tame and regulate the free market. This survived quite pop powerfully and popularly until the early uh, the, the late 1970s in which an economic crisis brought about a shift in the common sense of American and indeed global economics. And this was the product of a new intellectual project that begins in the immediate post-World War II era um, with a group of intellectuals attached to the Mount Pelerin Society and other groups that call themselves neoliberals. Friedrich Hayek, um, uh, uh, Van Mies, a number of other, and Milton Friedman, among others. And these people pushed the idea of deregulation um, to starve the, to, you know, the, um, the state for sake of maximizing um, corporate uh, freedom and independence. They called themselves neoliberals. Now, this term gets used in multiple different places, but the early folks like Hayek, um, in particular uses this term because of their attachment to the belief in classical liberalism, which we find in you know, someone like John Stuart Mill, classical liberalism, which emphasizes individual freedoms, individual liberty, 
in particular individual rights to pursue private property and wealth accumulation. And they then call themselves the neoliberals because of their attachment to neoclassical economics, and thus they are the neoliberals. Um, for these folks, they placed a high emphasis on personal freedom over what they imagined to be the social or common good. Indeed, Hayek is quoted as saying, quote, so long as the belief in social justice governs political action, this process must progressively approach nearer and nearer to a totalitarian system. That if we believe and push the idea of social justice, that's how we get to totalitarianism. What we need is individual freedom, not social justice. And this becomes attached to a series of think tanks and groups, in particular the Chicago Boys, the University of Chicago uh, Economics Department, led by uh, Milton Friedman, the Heritage Foundation, and others. And eventually, it's pushed to the surface when someone like Hayek wins the, the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1972, and Milton Friedman wins in 1976. This then begets a wave of political action, particularly starting in the late 70s with the election of Margaret Thatcher in Britain and Ronald Reagan in the United States. Margaret Thatcher famously held up a copy in Parliament of Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom and said, this is what we believe. This is what we believe, right? Margaret Thatcher, always good for a quote, it was famous for saying, quote, economics is the method, but the object is to change the soul. So don't, don't go thinking that this is a, not a coercive ideology. It's explicitly coercive from the start. Indeed, Margaret Thatcher was also famous for saying, there is no such thing as society, only individual men and women, and then was coerced into later adding, and their families. <laughs> so she initially did not even believe that families were meaningful forms of sociability. Now, what's the results of this? This ideology of liberating free markets from the constraints of state power, seeking to create greater degrees of, of equality, social justice, and the like, the, the movements of the 1960s and 70s. Well, this is the chart that I, I, I'm going to, I want to look at three, three charts as to the best of my ability, but this is the one I really want to focus on. Created by Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saz. Now, Emmanuel Saz teaches economics here at UC Berkeley. And this, I think, is probably the single most economic chart that any of you are really going to look at and make sense of. And what you've got here is the top 10%. Now, this is the original one. I, I'll give you the more revised. This is the more revised. So what we're looking at is the chart um, here on the, what is on the left side of the screen. Um, what we have here is the rate of inequality in the United States as measured by tax returns, which is why it starts in 1917. And it shows you that, that the rate of um, uh, economic inequality in terms of income, not wealth, but income. So how much of the national share of income does the top 10% of income earners take? And so what you see here is starting in 1917 is this rise to a peak in, and so what, this is US history just laid out uh, on a single chart in terms of income inequality. And so what we see at this peak here in 1927, 1928, that is what will beget the 1929 stock market crash. That level of inequality produced a crisis of overaccumulation and underconsumption that led to the Great Slump or the economic collapse of the Great Depression of the 1930s. What you see secondary to that are these years in which income inequality fluctuates but does not meaningfully come down, and that is the era of the Great Depression itself. What drives inequality down, what pushes this down into this period between 1941 and 1980, what economists know is the Great Compression, the period of the greatest degree of economic egalitarianism in U.S. history, is the Second World War. 
in which Franklin Roosevelt institutes massive tax increases on the wealthiest members of Americans so as to pay for the war. Roosevelt introduces not only the New Deal and introduces massive new incentives for people to join unions, but a 92% tax bracket, which effectively functioned as a salary cap on Americans so that the rich actually paid for the war that would defend their profits in the future. And so what you have in this period from the 1940s into the 1970s is the greatest period of economic prosperity for the middle class in world history. It created the most powerful, the wealthiest, the most well-resourced middle class this world has ever seen, at least to this point. Now, China is building one of its own right now uh, and will contest ours, but this was the period of greatest American economic prosperity. This was the period of Keynesian economics. This was the period in which it was absolutely 100% free to attend the University of California at Berkeley. And in fact, all the other UCs, it was free. College was free, right, during this period. Um, and to be middle class was, uh, you know, to, to know that you're, uh, so you would be able to hand your wealth down uh, to younger people, to, to your children. Now, keep in mind, this is also the period in which Jim Crow segregation continued to dominate. And by the 1970s, as African-Americans begin to eke, enter the housing market, the educational market, uh, and demand greater economic freedom, the reaction sets in. And inequality uh, is essentially falls into place with the election of Nixon and then eventually Ronald Reagan in 1980. As this line goes up, what the upward trajectory of this line means, quite simply, is that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. That's what it means. It means that you all have lived your entire lives in a country in which the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And the greater share of wealth is being accumulated by small, a smaller and smaller number of people. Now, Piketty and Saz, um, excuse me, uh, Saz and Zuckman in their book, that, uh, that I, The Triumph of Injustice, about tax policy, gives us this, that the, the working class in their sense, right, and, and Sarah will probably have her own definitions of these, I mean, which I would, uh, we want to hear, because there's a lot of ways of measuring this. Uh, so this is just what's in the reading, that the bottom 50%, or 122 million Americans, have an average annual income of only $18,500. That's half the American people make $18,000 a year. That's what they're expected to live on. Meanwhile, the rich, the top 1%, have an annual income of 1.5 million. The 0.1% have an annual income of 7 million. Now, what they write on page five is, quote, the striking fact about the American economy is not that the middle class is vanishing. It's how little income the working class makes. It's not that the middle class is shrinking. It's just how desperately poor the overwhelming majority of Americans actually are. Now, why? This is chart number two. What you have is, in this chart, is you see the decoupling of productivity from wages. And this is a product of neoliberal deregulation and the destruction of American union households. As you see at the bottom of the chart, the hourly compensation and productivity, the amount of capital and wealth that companies are able to generate per uh, worker hour, right? Workers get more productive as technology increases, as um, their skills increase, as their educational level increase, and hourly productivity and wages are in sync, growing steadily until the crisis of the late 1970s, in which they then become decoupled. And at the point in 1975, American wages, hourly wage compensation flatlines. Like your average wage just flatlines. Nobody's making more money year to year. 
Meanwhile, productivity continues to skyrocket, to just rise and rise and rise. What you have in this vast space between these two lines is the astonishing level of corporate profitability that has come from increased productivity and flattening wages. This is the massive accumulation of wealth at the very top of the economic ladder. Whereas the people at the bottom see their lives either declining or stagnating, the people at the top see their fortunes radically escalating. Now this is, there's a lot to say about that, but we can map this very directly onto the decline of unions in the United States. Particularly, unions have a tremendous capacity to both regulate the economy, to prevent cycles of booms and busts, but they basically earn working class people higher wages and greater benefits, particularly women of color who make huge amounts more money when they are in a union than when they're not. And the, the attack on unions begins earnestly in the 1980s with right to work laws and symbolized by Ronald Reagan's destruction of PATCO, which was the um, uh, air traffic controllers uh, who went on strike in 1980. He broke the union. And you can see here that as union membership in the, in the United States declines, inequality goes up. These are directly related economically. Um, part of this is, you know, the, you know the, the rise of information technology and computers that lead to greater productivity. Uh, yes, that is Steve Jobs in a terrible pinstripe suit in front of the first Mac. Um, and, but also the intense deregulation of the economy, particularly the deregulation of the financial sector, in which things like exorbitant um, interest rates on credit cards and low uh, and small loans or payday loans uh, creates enormous benefits and profits for companies, but it also deregulates um, you know, banks such that today banks make more money off of essentially fees and penalties than they do off of basic profitability. They, they, so basically banks create rules that you can't follow and then take your money when you break them. Um, but it also creates in this space creates, a, a, you know, the deregulation of the financial sectors creates all kinds of, and, and the flattening of economic uh, wages creates situations in which working class people both have access to credit, but need credit in order to buy the things they need. And what we saw in the, the, the first decade of the 20th, 21st century was this massive rise in mortgages being consumed by people that wouldn't ordinarily not have gotten them. And then when they defaulted on those loans, the sophistication and complexity of financial markets led to an absolute collapse of the global economy based on mortgage, interest, mortgage rates, it's not mortgage rates, but um, the financialization of mortgage consumption uh, of mortgages across the United States. So this is the housing rates as they collapse, and then this is my favorite version of um, uh, the front page of the New York Times. That when they show uh, lines going down and white people on phones going. Ugh you know that the economy has collapsed. It's a whole genre of photography of white people going, oh. you, know, you see what I'm talking about? Oh. Right, that's what, that's what bad financial news looks like, okay? Downward red lines, white people, okay? Now, so what we see here is this, you know, that again, the, the chart that, uh, the, that this is chart number two. Let me this just briefly give you chart number three. The neoliberal state does not believe that it should be spending money on things like education, on things like healthcare, on things like uh, parks and uh, public services, but it does believe very firmly on spending money on the military, on borders, on police, 
and on prisons. And so what we see here from Gabriel Zuckman um, is the split starting again in the mid-1970s between um, public expenditures on welfare. This is just welfare in particular in terms of temporary assistance, food stamps, supplementary and security income and the like, and public order. So as there's a steep decline in payments uh, handed out by governments for welfare, there's a steep increase in the amount of money spent on policing and prisons. And that is that you can see the relationship. It shouldn't be too complicated to map out that relationship. If you've got poor people are getting poorer and the government is withdrawing its uh, uh, welfare interests, it's drawing back, it's not offering uh, cash subsidies to poor people, what's going to happen to them? Uh, particularly if now there's more and more police, right? You have a surplus population that the prison, and, that, and this is Ruth Wilson Gilmore's language, you've got a surplus population, you've got surplus wealth and surplus state capacity that then feeds into what we now know of as the greatest wave of mass incarceration in human history. There are more than 2.2 million people currently in prison. In California, there are over 160,000 and more than 90 state facilities, the majority of which were built since 1984. And what we have here, you know, essentially that between, um, uh, excuse me, between 1982 and the year 2000, the California prison population grew by over 500%. And in that process, it transformed itself from a largely white prison population to a largely black and brown population. At the same time, police departments became increasingly militarized. Large numbers of cops that are increasingly militarized with even small towns like Ferguson, Missouri, uh, being able to purchase things like tanks, body armor, and heavy weaponry for their police. And yes, this photograph appeared on the front page of the New York Times, but their copy editor clearly did not read the symbol on the mailbox. Um, the sequence also has been, I, I, this is where I would like to end, is that this is directly related to you. And I know I'm going very fast, and I genuinely believe that Sarah was going to fill all of this in beautifully. <laughs> um, but what you have also in this is that as the state has withdrawn its contributions to things like education, as the state of California and as the state on a national level has um, reduced its contributions to things like higher education, what are the consequences? Well, you all know what the consequences are. Tuition increases, year after year after year of massive tuition increases. And so what you get in this is a student debt crisis. Not only has tuition gone from, again, remember, the boomers went to Cal for free, for free. Mario Savio paid nothing to go to Cal, okay? You all are paying at least $15,000 or more. Now, that's a crisis in its own sense. The state has withdrawn its power, right, to pay for this. It's withdrawn the rate in which it's offering this to where now tuition dollars uh, pay a greater portion of uh, the cost than the state does. And that is not what public higher education is supposed to be. So what, what's the response? You all take out loans. You all take out massive loans that it takes years and years and years to pay back, Right. And, that, 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 and is there going to be an economy out there, a job out there so that you can pay that back? Or are you going to be in debt for the rest of your lives? This is why Zoomers and millennials have a very ambivalent relationship to capitalism, because they've never known a capitalist system in which they were not predominantly interacting with the capitalist system as a debtor. Now, to this, lastly, I give you the words of um, Wendy Brown, who says, quote, 
freedom without society, without the sense of the common good or a collective purpose, freedom without society destroys the lexicon by which freedom is made democratic, paired with social consciousness and nested in political equality. Freedom without society is a pure instrument of power, shorn of concern for others, the world, or the future. And so in that, I would just like offer, you know, like let the t-shirt be the banner. Hi, I am your professor. I think your student debt is unjust. Let's talk. All right, peace, everybody. I'll turn this over to Sarah. Thank you. That was, uh, that's going to be, I, I hope I fulfill your expectations of filling in beautifully. <laughs> I really appreciate that, though, as great context. I'm going to share my screen now. So I hope everybody had a chance to uh, at least skim the chapters from my book because I'll give some good background. What I want to do is, um, you know, Professor Cohen did a great job providing an overview of inequality and what's happening with our, what's been happening with our economy really over the last century. Um, and I want to provide an example of the impact of that on the low wage sector of our economy in particular, which is no longer this marginalized kind of minority of people. It's increasingly, you know, close to half of our population, as Professor Cohen indicated. Um, and this is based on what I'm going to present today. And the book that I wrote um, is the second of three books on the restaurant industry and on the food system. I have another one coming out in January. And um, all of this is based on 20 years of work organizing and conducting research, uh, including participatory research, meaning participatory research is where workers are involved in conducting research on their own lives and conditions, and actually also interviewing and surveying their peers in the industry. They participate in their own research rather than some outsider coming and studying them. They study themselves and they uplift their own conditions. So this, everything I'm going to share and the book that you read is based on 20 years of that kind of participatory research alongside government data analysis, um, interviews with employers in our industry, literally thousands of them, um, to kind of give you a picture of the largest low-wage workforce in America, which is the restaurant industry. So I do just want to say um, just to add a few notes to what Professor Cohen talked about with regard to the whole economy before getting into the restaurant industry as an example, that um, we indeed have been reaching the highest levels of income inequality in our nation's history, as he indicated, uh, right before the pandemic, and um, that the low-wage sectors of our economy were the fastest growing. And that's so important to note, um, because even if you really couldn't care less about low-wage workers... Uh, you know, I think the the I think it's important to note that prior to the pandemic, and we are in such a severe crisis now economically. But prior to the pandemic, even without a pandemic, we were headed to disaster. We were headed to crisis, um, similar to what Professor Cohen described with the depression, because of the growth of the low wage floor of the economy and the real question about where would consumption come from if you've got the largest and fastest growing sectors of our economy increasingly unable to consume. And um, that kind of tie between the condition of low-wage workers and consumption was something that was not always 
kind of dismissed by leading capitalists. There were, there were times in our nation's history where leading capitalists thought a little bit more, not to say that they were generous or altruistic, but they thought a little bit more about the consumption power of the people that they employed. And in particular, um, I want to just kind of show us, let's see it. So this, this is job growth um, pre and post uh, uh, the recession that happened about a decade ago, 2008, that what we're seeing right now is that higher wage and middle wage jobs did not grow as they, that's where we saw a lot of loss in jobs, middle wage jobs in particular during the recession, the last recession. And what we know from the recessions of the last few recessions leading up to now and true of now as well, is that most of the job loss is in higher wage and mid-wage jobs and most of the job gain is in lower wage jobs. And what does that mean? We are growing the low wage floor of our economy. We are reducing our nation's ability to consume. And therefore we're also, some of these industries, including the industry I'm gonna talk about, are cannibalizing themselves. As I've mentioned before, we talked about corporate cannibals last time, but they're truly reducing their own ability to have consumers. And um, there were capitalists in the past who were worried about this and did something about this. So um, Henry Ford was not, was not a wonderful person. He was a Nazi. Um, he was a Nazi sympathizer. He um, was actually, you know, in contact with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Um, he was a union buster. He was a very overt racist. So please don't take any of this as Henry Ford was a wonderful person. But he did do something that our current capitalist leaders are not doing, which is worry about who's going to buy the cars coming off my assembly line. And um, at various points, as the, as the founder and leader of the Ford Motor Corporation gave his workers significant raises and bonuses and wages that were, not, that were much higher than comparable factory jobs, that were much higher at the time than what other people were earning in other sectors because he actually had this notion, which some people called Fordism, that I need to make sure that the workers I employ, the thousands and thousands of workers I employ, are able to afford to consume the cars coming off the line. That is what is going to make my business healthy. Um, and that is a very different concept from where people are coming at, where our capitalist leaders are coming from right now. Some of the leaders that my, uh, Professor Cohen put forward in terms of who are doing really well, Jeff Bezos um, and Zuckerberg and others don't seem to think along these lines, don't seem to worry about the consumption power of their workforce. And so it, I do want to say, not that these were wonderful people and we should not be idolizing in any way the past, but there, there have been at different times a different way of viewing capitalism even and the success of capitalism and the ability for capital to grow and survive. Uh, people have seen in other moments the need to make sure people can consume if you want robust capitalism. And that is not the case uh, at the moment. So and the restaurant industry is one of the, the best examples of this. So prior to the pandemic, 
the restaurant industry employed 13.6 million people. It was the number two largest private sector employer in the United States of America, second only to retail. And retail is so comprehensive. It includes everything from auto body, like auto, you're going to buy a car to the gift shop in the hospital to grocery stores. Retail is massive and kind of ever pervasive. So restaurants as a sector, which is a little bit more concrete and identifiable, is the second largest private, has been, was prior to the pandemic, the second largest private sector employer in the United States. Um, and in fact, prior to the pandemic, one in 11 workers in America who are working, one in 11 people who are working worked in the restaurant industry. And that was current working in the industry. One in two Americans, half of all Americans, have worked in the restaurant industry at some point in their lifetime. I'm sure many of you have worked in the restaurant industry at some point in your lifetime or have family members who do half of America has worked in the restaurant industry at some point in their lifetime. And yet, despite the industry's size and its growth, every single year, every single year prior to the pandemic, when the US Department of Labor would put out a list of the 10 lowest paying jobs in America, restaurant jobs would always be six or seven of the absolute lowest paying jobs in America and always at the bottom of the list. So here you can see fast food cooks, preparate food prep and serving workers, including fast food, but also full service, dishwashers, coffee shop and counter attendants, dining room and bartender helpers, hosts and hostesses, that's six of the 10 lowest paying occupations on this. This is the 10 lowest paying occupations in America. And they are at the bottom. They are sick, the six at the bottom. The shampooers are the only exception to rest, restaurant occupations all being the absolute lowest paying job. So again, it's so important to just stop and note, I just told you it was one of the largest and fastest growing private sector employers in the United States. And it is also the absolute lowest paying employer. So what does it do to the restaurant industry itself, but also to our overall ability to consume as a country when the overall, the, the largest and fastest growing sectors are the lowest paying? It means increasingly the, the jobs that are available to new entrants into the workforce, whether that's formerly incarcerated individuals, immigrants, young people like yourselves, these are the jobs that are available and they happen to be the lowest paying jobs in America. And not surprisingly, the restaurant industry is the largest employer of women, the largest employer of formerly incarcerated individuals, the largest employer of immigrants, the largest employer of people of color in the United States, private sector employer of people of color, because public sector does employ a lot of people of color, but largest private sector employer of people of color. And yet it is the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States of America. Now, this fact that the restaurant industry is the lowest paying employer is not inherent or organic, no pun intended, to the nature of running a restaurant. And how do I know that? I know that because I work with about a thousand amazing restaurant owners, some of whom are profiled in the later chapters of the book that you read, who are paying livable wages. And they're not, I want to say, they're, they're not thriving and doing really well as business owners in spite of people, in spite of paying people well, they are doing well as business owners because they are paying people well. They find they have their business philosophy. These 1,000 restaurant owners I work with is 
our bottom line improves when we pay people well because we find far less turnover, far greater morale, far greater customer service and productivity. Our business thrives because people are doing well. Um, but that's not the case for the majority, for the vast majority of workers in the industry. And it's certainly not the philosophy of the vast majority of employers. And hence, we have the largest and fastest growing industry with the lowest paying wages. But my point is, it is not inherent to the nature of running a restaurant that you must pay people very little. No, instead, the reason you've got the largest and fastest growing industry in America with the absolute lowest paying jobs really can be traced back undeniably to the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association. We call it the other NRA. It represents the chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's, the Olive Gardens. And in doing research for the book you read, Forked, I found something that I didn't know. I thought because it represents the chains, this trade lobby could not have been around more than 50 or 60 or maybe 70 years because the chains haven't been around that long. But we found that, in fact, the NRA has, is, a, is, a, um, is an evolved entity. It's evolved from various restaurant industry trade lobbies over the last 150 years, dating all the way back to emancipation of slavery. So um, I want to start by you know, sharing this history that, as you read in the book, tipping didn't originate in the United States. It originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. It was an extra or a bonus, something that aristocrats and nobles gave you know, for a job well done, but always on top of a wage. If you watch Downton Abbey or you read old English literature, you will see references to tipping. It was like the extra 20 quid that the aristocrat or the noble in the big house gave the field laborer or the domestic worker on top of a wage for a job well done. That idea came to the States around the 1850s when um, there, were, there was finally the ability for Americans to travel, rich Americans to travel with ease to Europe spend time in Europe and come back easily to America. So there were a lot more Americans traveling to Europe, coming back and trying to show off that they knew the rules of Europe and they started to tip. Now, around this time, this is not in the book, um, there was actually a massive strike of waiters up and down the Eastern seaboard in the United States, in Philadelphia, in New York. Um, they were mostly all men at the time, white and black, but but you know, a combination, and all men, and they went on strike. So this is prior to emancipation. These were northern states where black people were free and uh, they were working and, and white and black waiters went on strike in multiple cities. And restaurants in these major cities, mostly on the East Coast, but also Chicago, in response to this strike right before emancipation, in response, decided to replace all of these men with women. So the feminization of the industry occurred right before emancipation. And at emancipation, the restaurant lobby wanted the right to hire black people, and in particular, black women, because this feminization had occurred, and not pay them anything and have them live exclusively on tips. They weren't alone in this. There were actually two sectors that wanted to be able to hire black people after emancipation and not pay them. There were many sectors that wanted to do this, of course, but there were two sectors that succeeded in doing it, I should say. Um, the Pullman Train Company, which were luxury 
you know, railroad liners that cross the country, again, for the first time, allowing rich Americans to cross the country with ease. And they hired tens of thousands of black men. There's a really amazing film you should see called 10,000 Black Men Named George, because they called all of the black men, regardless of their actual names, George. It was a demeaning term to call, as they called them, Pullman car porters. These were porters on these luxury lines, all men, and like the restaurant lobby, they wanted the right to hire these black men on these trains and not pay them anything and have them essentially bow and scrape for their income from tips from customers on these trains. But a man named A. Philip Randolph lobbied to unionize the workers on these trains, the 10,000 black men that they called George. That's why the movie, it's the movies about A. Philip Randolph and the Pullman car porters um, union that he formed. And at first they went to the traditional labor movement and said, let us form a union. The traditional labor movement said no. And so the A. Philip Randolph formed his own union, the first black union in the United States of Pullman car porters. And they won the right to an actual wage rather than relying on customer tips. But the black women, mostly black women and some black men, but mostly black women who were employed by restaurants were not so fortunate. There was no union for them. There was a waitresses union at the time that did not accept them. And they were made to work for a zero dollar wage with tips being their only form of compensation. And I just want to remind us that that was a mutation of the original concept of tipping. Tipping was never intended to be the wage. Tipping was always intended to be an extra or a bonus on top of the wage. But because of slavery, tipping became a replacement for the wage. And that became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal. Professor Cohen talked about how the New Deal was part of the reason for the Great Compression. The New Deal gave the right to organize and the right to a minimum wage, the right to a, uh, an eight-hour day, to not work weekends. That all came from the New Deal. Finally, labor reached its height. Labor unions, which were mostly white, had organized and won these rights. Child labor was outlawed. A lot of great things happened as part of the New Deal, but black workers were largely left out of especially the minimum wage. The minimum wage for the first time, first federal minimum wage we ever had in the United States, 1938, left out three groups of black workers, farm workers who are mostly black, domestic workers who are mostly black, and tipped restaurant workers who were mostly black and mostly black women at the time were left out and told you, sure, you could get the minimum wage in tips, your employer will pay you zero. And as long as you get to the full minimum wage and tips, you're fine. Now, I, I do think it's important to stop and recognize the, for those of you that have worked in the industry, and I'm sure there are many on this, on this, on this Zoom call who have worked in the industry, what's so amazing about that history, before we go on to the present, what's so important to note about that history is that it has actually over the last 150 years since emancipation, it has really, uh, really changed the, the thinking, the frame of mind of restaurant workers across America, regardless of race and gender. People who work for tips, millions of them across America, a lot of them have gotten to the place where they think of the tip as their primary source of income, as the thing they work hard for, as the thing that they earn. And the wage, which is so low because of this history, it's currently $2.13 an hour. They think of the wage as a negligible 
bonus <laughs> or, or gift or frankly just a negligible thing because it goes to mostly to taxes that it's not the primary thing that you earn which is frankly the opposite of what wages and tips were meant to be. Wages were meant to be the thing that you earn from your employer because your employer is profiting off the value of your labor. Tips were meant to be an extra or a bonus on top of the wage. But the industry has successfully, I want to say, brainwashed or convinced restaurant workers in America that in fact the opposite is true, that what they earn doesn't come from the employer, it comes from the customer. And what they you know, can neglect or think of as a bonus or an extra or something negligible is the thing that the employer's actually supposed to be providing for the value of their labor, which is the wage. Um, and, and I'll get later to, to why that's so uh, problematic, why it's so problematic that the largest workforce of, of Americans thinks of a wage as negligible and what they earn from the customers as a bonus as their primary source of income. But going back to the history, what we saw in 1938 was the establishment essentially of a value being placed on black people compared to other workers with the establishment of the minimum wage as not of value. Zero dollars as long as tips bring you to the full minimum wage. And we went from zero in 1938 all the way up to the whopping $2.13 an hour, the current federal minimum wage in the United States of America today. Um, and that, that ridiculous, that fact that it stayed at $2.13 an hour is based on decades and decades of lobbying by the National Restaurant Association, which has grown increasingly powerful. I love this photograph of Congressmember John Lewis back in the day when he was engaged in um, the sit-ins in the restaurants. And this restaurant, whatever it was, was a member of the National Restaurant Association. Um, and so this juxtaposition between this trade lobby that has represented you know, establishment restaurants, chain restaurants, had basically fought to make sure black workers were excluded from the minimum wage through the, through the creation of the subminimum wage for tipped workers, juxtaposed their image via this, the strikers, the sit-in, folks engaged in the sit-in, including Congressmember Lewis, who this photo became famous uh, and in his recent passing, but it is an interesting kind of um, image to think about the power of this lobby that frankly most people don't even know about. Everybody knows about the National Rifle Association. We have to call the National Restaurant Association the other NRA because people don't know it, but it has always consistently been named one of the top 10 most powerful lobbying groups in Congress. It is consistently the most important and influential voice in most states with regard to all worker issues, not just minimum wage. But if you ask anybody who has fought around paid sick leave, the National Restaurant Association has been the primary opponent to paid sick leave. If you talk to anybody who's fought on paid family leave, they've been the primary opponent to paid family leave. During the fight around ACA and what some people call Obamacare, healthcare reform, they were the most vitriolic voices against um, the ACA. And in fact, at the time, they demanded an exemption for the restaurant industry, claiming that because tipped workers work for customer tips, they should be deemed independent contractors rather than employees, and therefore employers wouldn't be responsible for making sure that these workers were part of the exchanges. They even formed something called the 39ers Club, where they all, all of these chains got together and committed to making sure all of their employees only got 39 hours instead of 40 so that they 
wouldn't be eligible to be part of the exchanges. This is the National Restaurant Association. And at some point, I can even tell you what they've done to me personally, putting my children's pictures up on attack websites and following me around the country. They've spent at least $10 million trying to shut me down. They are a bully. They are a very powerful bully that most Americans have never heard of and yet have managed to win this boondoggle, this exception of not having to pay the largest workforce in America practically at all. Um, so so that, that history is so important to know because it brings us to the current moment when today 70% of tipped workers are women. They're largely women who work in casual restaurants, IHOPs, Denny's, Applebee's, and their 40% of them are single mothers, and they literally and statistically have the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States of America. Um, this chart shows charges filed uh, with the EEOC. That is such a minuscule portion for anybody who's ever experienced sexual harassment uh, or anything akin to it, you know that most people don't do anything about it. Most people don't, A, know, recognize their experience as sexual harassment, B, file with the EEOC or with anybody. And so the fact that despite all of that, the, the largest percentage of claims come from the restaurant industry is an indication of how widespread the issue is. In fact, when we have surveyed thousands of workers, um, what's so interesting is that if you ask workers have you experienced sexual harassment in the restaurant industry? Our experience is that only one in five say yes. If you change the language to say, have you experienced sexual behavior in the restaurant that is scary or unwanted? 90% of both men and women say yes. And that is because most workers in our industry do not recognize what they've experienced as sexual harassment. It is so normalized it is so normalized, it is so part of the culture of what you need to do to get tips that most workers in our industry do not actually call what they've experienced sexual harassment. In their minds, sexual harassment is perhaps being assaulted, perhaps being raped or touched, perhaps they think it's, you know, it borders on criminal activity. Sexual harassment is any kind of hostile sexual behavior that makes you feel uncomfortable in the workplace and 90% of workers have experienced that, and it's largely due to the subminimum wage for tipped workers. How do we know that? We know that because we surveyed these 10,000 workers across America and found that workers in the states that have a subminimum wage uh, were twice as likely to experience sexual harassment as workers in the states that have a full minimum wage. So we know that California is one of seven states with a full minimum wage. California has half the rate of sexual harassment as the 43 states with a subminimum wage for tipped workers. And that is because women in the 43 states, especially women, it does happen to men, but mostly women, it's a mostly female workforce after all, are told by their managers, dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing in order to make more money in tips at three times the rate that they're told the same thing in California. Why? Because in those states, a woman knows her entire income. If you earn two or three dollars an hour, if anybody here has ever worked in one of these states, you know, earning two or three dollars an hour is truly negligible. It goes entirely to taxes. You live completely off your tips. And so your, your whole income is entirely dependent on 
on the customer's whims, the customer's desires, the customer's biases. And it also causes harassment from coworkers and managers because if the manager is telling you, you've got to subject yourself to objectification in order to get those tips to feed your family, and you thus subject yourself to objectification, you dress a certain way because that's what you're told to do, that makes you vulnerable then to coworker and management harassment. It is thus the, the signal that you are fair game for everybody to objectify you. And that is what has happened to millions of women across the country. You know, I, I'm sorry, I forget sometimes what I've shared with you versus because I, I speak publicly like at least 10 times a week. So I'm sorry if I've already shared this anecdote. Forgive me. But last year, we did a really great event with Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She came and did a server for an hour event with us at a restaurant in Queens, where, as you know, she was a bartender before she became a congressperson. She came and kind of did that again. She acted as a bartender and our workers were the restaurant workers were the customers. They got to be served for the first time in their life. And um, in that event, she told the press, which was, you know, a lot of press showed up. She told the press, listen, you know, when you work in a state like New York, where there's a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, maybe from the first to the 15th of the month, when a guy tries to grab your butt, you can swat it away and you can say, buzz off, because I don't need, I don't need that. I don't need you grabbing my butt. I'm going to do my job. But she said, from the 15th to the 30th of the month, as rent approaches, you are going to be far less likely to swat that guy's hand away because you rely on that guy to give you the money you need to pay the rent. You rely on that guy to give you the money you need to feed your children. So the dependence on tips is what makes you willing to put up with the harassment, not just willing to put up with it, but in many cases encouraged by your employers to encourage it. I want to say that again. You are encouraged by your employers to encourage it. I had a young woman, member of our organization, who first worked in Utah, where the wage is $2.13 an hour, and then moved to California, where the wage is 15 And she said, as a young woman in Utah, she would frequently get grabbed and complain. And her coworkers and managers would say, you're so lucky to get it while you're young. Because for so many of them, it was an indication that she could make more money in tips because the men wanted to grab her. Uh, and that is a problem for not just the restaurant industry and not just those women, but our whole economy. Because now what we know is that this ridiculously high experience of sexual harassment in the restaurant industry actually causes women who move on to other sectors to have a higher rate of tolerance for sexual harassment later in life. So we have interviewed thousands of people, CEOs, attorneys, you know, organizers, even Amy Klobuchar was a tipped worker. We interviewed her about her experience. We've, we've interviewed so many people who are tipped workers in their youth who say, I have been sexually harassed more recently in my current profession, and I didn't do anything about it because it was never as bad as it was when I was a young woman working in restaurants, which means the sexual harassment in our industry, the existence of the subminimum wage doesn't just impact women in the restaurant industry, it impacts women economy-wide and people economy-wide because it increases women's tolerance for this behavior later in life. In fact, recently I spoke at um, the law school at Berkeley and a professor told me after I lectured that he had a case where he had a group of restaurant workers approach a judge about sexual harassment. 
And the judge who was a woman said, well, their sexual harassment is not nearly as bad as what I experienced as a young woman working in restaurants. This is the judge. And therefore it is, you know, it's not that bad. So the experience as a young woman of harassment impacts us economy wide. And this is all prior to the pandemic. I want to make one more note about what these workers were experiencing prior to the pandemic. Um, and that is race. And that is to say, this was a report we released on August 20th, which was Black Women's Equal Pay Day. Um, I think I may have shared with you every year, uh, we, we, we honor, there's you know, Latino Women's Equal Pay Day, Black Women's Equal Pay Day. It falls on the day that it would take a Black woman to work uh, from the beginning of the year to reach the same wage that a white man would work. And in the case of Black women, it takes them a full year and eight months till August, a year and seven and a half months to get to the same wage, full year and a half of working to get to the same wage that a white man works. So we commemorate or recognize Black Women's Equal Pay Day on August 20th for that reason, but it's much worse in the restaurant industry because of the subminimum wage. In this report, we documented that prior to the pandemic, nationwide, there was a $5 per hour wage gap between what white men earned and what black women earned among tipped workers, among restaurant workers, and that that was 60% worse in New York and Massachusetts. We looked at all states. New York and Massachusetts were second only to Alabama in terms of the race wage gap. And the reason for it is that women of color, black women in particular, are segregated into lower paying segments of the industry, casual restaurants, Denny's and IHOPs as opposed to fine dining. Also, because even when they get into fine dining, all the data shows that customer bias in America results in uh, with people of color earning less in tips. Customers have implicit bias and they always tip people of color and women less. And so all of this points to the untenability, the um, unfairness, the unsustainability, the uh, you know, the legacy of slavery that was the sub-minimum wage prior to the pandemic. It was just wrong. And it was unsustainable for millions of workers. It was racist. It was sexist. Forcing people to live off the biases and whims and desires of customers was a source of economic instability. Extreme poverty. I showed you that these workers are the lowest paid workers in America. Inability to feed your kids. Sexual harassment and racism and racial wage gaps all before the pandemic, all before the pandemic. With the pandemic, what was wrong uh, has become a matter of life and death, literally. This is a map of the states that have a full minimum wage, uh, states that have somewhere between the sub-minimum wage and the regular minimum wage, and then states that are at that ridiculous $2.13 an hour. So all the red states, which sort of in many ways map with, not all of them, but many of them map with their political leaning in terms of Republican states. Um, not all of them, Virginia and New Mexico are changing. Um, but all of these red states just have the absolute bottom of the barrel wage of $2.13 an hour. The blue states are somewhere between $2 and the regular minimum wage. And the green states are, including California, are at one fair wage, a full minimum wage with tips on top. But even among those blue states, which you might think are better, 
40 out of 50 states in America have a sub-minimum wage of $5 or less. $5 or less. So even very blue places like DC and Massachusetts, their wage and, and their wages are less than $5 an hour. Pennsylvania's 283. DC is under $5 an hour. Massachusetts has been stuck at $3 for a very long time. It's a it's an absurd wage in even very blue states, uh, all because of the, the power of the Restaurant Association, which has not been limited to one party. The Republicans are not the only ones to roll over to the Restaurant Association. The most important part of this history is that in most of these states, uh, when Democrat, Democrats have been the one to push for raising the minimum wage, in all of the states Democrats have led the minimum wage, these 43 states, they have all been the ones to compromise with the Restaurant Association to leave the tipped workers out. And the best example of this was in 1995. The last time the minimum wage went up for tipped workers was 1991, 30 years ago. Um, that, I'm sorry, 40, almost 40 years ago at this point. Um, is that right? No, 30 years ago, 30 years ago. 30 years ago, it's been 30 years, two generations of women have been living on this $2 wage because of a man named Herman Cain. So uh, some of you know who Herman Cain is. <laughs> um, you know, it's hard not to know who he is. Um, but before he, before he was part of the Trump world, he, was, uh, he ran for president. And before he ran for president, he was the head of the National Restaurant Association. And as the head of the National Restaurant Association, Herman Cain sexually harassed a lot of women, and that's why he had to drop out of the presidential race later. But he also struck a deal with the Democrats in Congress. Bill Clinton was president in 1995. Democrats controlled Congress. They raised the minimum wage, and they struck this deal with Herman Cain that they would be able, the Restaurant Association would let them raise the minimum wage as long as they froze the wage for tipped workers forever. That was the deal struck in 1995. And that is why the wage has been stuck at $2.13 an hour. And I do think it's important to recognize this is a 70% women disproportionately women of color workforce. It's important to understand that in freezing these wages at $2, it's not just about the fact that these workers earn tips. It is the fact that it's a majority female workforce and it's a valuation of these women and um, their value to their employers and to our country. So this was all prior to the pandemic. And I show you this map to say this map, which created a very radically different experience for workers prior to the pandemic, resulted in a differential in life and death during the pandemic. I showed you this, uh, this, this chart previously a few classes ago in talking about the overall economy this is uh you know a few months ago the percentage of workers who applied for unemployment insurance were able to get it and nationally it was about 56 percent of workers who were able to access unemployment who applied for it this statistic was exactly the opposite the reverse for restaurant workers so most people who applied for unemployment insurance about 60 percent of them got it Restaurant workers, 40% of them got it, 60% were denied. 60% were denied unemployment insurance because in most states they were told, all of these red and blue states, that they, most states they were told, whoops, sorry, 
most of these red and blue states, they were told your sub minimum wage of two, three or four or $5, whatever it is in that state is too low to meet the minimum threshold to qualify for benefits, which was an absurd slap in the face. Most of these states had refused to raise these workers wages. And then because they were negotiating with the restaurant association because they had rolled over to the power of the restaurant association and then turned around during the pandemic and told those same workers because we didn't raise your wage you now can't get benefits because your wages are too low and because in most cases tips went underreported not even necessarily by the workers i i had a we had a member in michigan who told us i religiously reported my tips but because my boss didn't report my tips he didn't want to pay taxes on them I was told by the state of Michigan, I can't get benefits because my wages look too low. It looks like I just earned $3 and no tips. So uh, in many, many cases, most cases, 60% of cases, restaurant workers couldn't get state unemployment insurance. That federal $600, if they finally got it, in many cases, they had a lot of trouble accessing it because it came through the states. But if they finally got it, uh, it was then cut off. And, and you all know Congress has not renewed that $600, they're stuck in a, in a stalemate. Um, but this was devastating, devastating, because 10 million restaurant workers lost their jobs with the pandemic. 10 million out of 13.6 million lost their jobs. 60% were unable to access unemployment insurance. That's 6 million people with no income whatsoever, no savings, because if you've been working for $2 plus tips, you have no savings. Um, inability to feed their children, inability to pay the rent, inability to pay bills, which are especially challenging now with winter coming. I, you know, I think we have a crisis, not only of food insecurity and home insecurity, but you will see people dying for inability to have heat this winter. It is going to be pretty catastrophic because most of the folks we're in touch with, millions of them, don't have the ability to pay any bills, let alone gas or food or the necessities. Um, so, but, but the, but the really scariest part is that in a lot of states, these workers are being asked to go back to work and they're being asked to enforce social distancing and mask rules with the very same customers from whom they're supposed to get tips to survive. So you have a situation where restaurant workers are having to make this choice. Do I go back to work? and risk my life and my family's life exposing myself to the virus uh, for a two or three dollar job when tips are down 75 percent or do i say no to that and lose my benefits because the way unemployment insurance was set up in the united states it was set up to force you to take any low-wage job that comes your way so i'll lose my benefits so which choice do i make and then now on top of that the added pressure of the manager telling you are the one that's going to have to tell the customers to sit six feet apart to wear masks when they're not eating. That's your job. And you're supposed to get tips from those same customers. I'm sure many of you have seen the news reports of servers and bartenders getting assaulted, getting attacked, getting harassed for trying to make customers sit apart or wear masks. Those same customers are who they are relying on for their ability to feed their kids. Um, and yes, there was a law, if you heard my history, the rule from federal law back in 1938 was tips are supposed to bring you to the full minimum wage. If they don't, the employer has to make up the difference. Under Obama, when we had the highest levels of enforcement of that rule, there was an 84% violation rate of that rule, and the Obama administration declared the issue unenforceable. And then now under the Trump administration, they have publicly declared 
an end to all enforcement, an end to all enforcement of these rules. So if you don't make any money in tips, the employer in this moment under Trump has no obligation to make sure to pay you anything <laughs> to bring you to the full minimum wage. And so you can go work, maybe you make nothing, you go home, employer has no, no real worry. And I think what I show you this article because this is not just a disaster for 13 million workers, this is a public health disaster. Uh, CDC just put out last week that adults are twice as likely, those who had COVID are twice as likely to have died in a restaurant. They're looking at restaurants as super spreader locations. And this is where we are expecting workers who are being paid two and three dollars to be our public health enforcers. One of two things is going to happen. Either they are going to enforce the rule and make no money, no tips, no ability to feed their families, or they're not going to enforce the rules or not be able to enforce the rules and hopefully get some tips. But certainly we're going to see a, a huge increase in the pandemic coming out of restaurants as restaurants reopen in multiple states around the country. Um, so what does all of this have to do with the elections? Why are we talking about this in a class on elections 2020? Um, so, you know, I've obviously been organizing these workers for 20 years and what have heard, what we've heard from these workers who have an, anywhere from an 11 to a 20% voter turnout rate. Um, what we've heard consistently until recently is, why would I vote? Why would I vote? I've seen Democrats sell me down the river to the National Restaurant Association, leaving me behind at two and three dollars an hour. Republicans would never even entertain raising my wage. My wage is what impacts my ability to survive and my family's ability to survive. But I see neither party nor any candidate doing anything about it. I've been stuck at two dollars for 30 years, 30 years by Democrats and Republicans. Why would I vote? Why would I care to vote? Um, in 2016, I approached Amanda Renteria, who is Hillary Clinton's uh, political director. And I told her, I'm sitting on 13 million people who mostly don't vote. They are what the Democrats called the rising American electorate. In 2016, there was a lot of talk of the RAE, the rising American electorate single mothers, single women, single mothers, you know, women of color. These were, to them, the fastest growing demographics of people that they wanted to target to win elections. This was, you know, all the consultants, all the pundits advising Hillary Clinton, advising the Democrats in 2016. This is what they were talking about, the RAE, Rising American Electorate. So I went to Amanda Renteria, head of the political, of the campaign for Hillary and I said, I'm sitting on 13.6 million people. They are mostly RAE, mostly single women, single mothers, um, women of color. They are your target population. And I know what it is that will get them out to vote. Come to Michigan, come to Pennsylvania and talk to them about raising their wage from two or $3 to $15 an hour. That, and, and do it, actually do it. Commit to that and do it. Um, and their answer was, well, we haven't seen the polling on this. We're not sure. Uh, and they ended up focusing on what they had always focused on, which is what they call the likely voters. They focused on people who had voted in the past, not people like my population who never, ever vote, who generally don't vote, largely because, frankly, they saw no 
nobody coming to them from the Democratic Party, nobody coming to them from either party, nobody actually changing, no election or candidate actually changing the material conditions of their lives. So we just we set out after 2016 when Michigan was lost to Trump by just 11,000 votes. We said, let's look at Michigan and let's show the party what they are doing wrong, what they are missing. And so we collected 400,000 signatures to put this issue on the November 2018 ballot in Michigan to raise the wage in Michigan from $3.52 an hour to $12 an hour. And the Republicans who control the state legislature in Michigan knew something that the Democrats couldn't figure out. They knew that this would drive working people, and in particular working women and people of color to the polls. And they were terrified. They were terrified that this going directly on the ballot in November 2018 would mean they'd lose the legislature in Michigan. They knew it was that powerful. It would drive that many people to the polls because people would, wouldn't care about candidates. They would go vote themselves a raise. And people who would go vote themselves a raise tend to be more Democratic-leaning voters. So the Republicans, in an insane move in early uh, 2018, or you know, in 2018, once we collected the signatures and were proved to be on the ballot, they took it off the ballot. And the only way they can take legally something off the ballot is if they pass it, they make it law. So Republicans did something Democrats had never done in Michigan. They went ahead and made it law. They raised the wage from $3.52 to $12. They nearly quadrupled the wages of 400,000 restaurant workers in Michigan. I'm going to say that again. We lost, we lost Michigan to Trump by 11,000 votes. There were 400,000 restaurant workers in Michigan with an 11% voter turnout rate. They mostly didn't vote because they had never seen candidates in Michigan or at the national level actually produce anything for them. 11% voter turnout rate. If those 400,000 people had turned out with even a slightly more higher turnout rate, Michigan would not have been lost. Michigan was key to Trump winning in 2016. So the Republicans made it law. And when they made it law, they publicly announced to the press, we are doing this to keep people from voting. They said to the press, we are doing this to keep people from voting. We promise to gut this after the election during what they call the lame duck period. So what we did in response was that we mobilized about 5,000 workers, developed them as leaders to each contact 10 or 20 of their peers in the restaurant industry and say, we just want ourselves a raise. If we wanna keep our raise, we've actually got to go vote, vote ourselves a raise. And we ended up uh, not only reaching about 100,000 voters total of those 400,000 restaurant workers, um, but we also ended up uh, increasing voter turnout from 11 or 12% in 2014 to 37% among restaurant workers in 2018, a 300% jump among all adults. It was, it was closer to 400% among young people in some counties in Michigan. And um, there was the highest, overall, the highest midterm turnout in Michigan in 50 years. For the first time in U.S. history, Michigan had a woman governor, secretary of state, and attorney general, all of whom had been very supportive to raising the minimum wage and, and eliminating the sub-minimum wage. Um, and it established the power of restaurant workers. But of course, the Republicans did exactly what they said they were going to do, and they reversed it right after the election. And so now it's in the courts in Michigan. It's, you know, it's, it's in the courts in multiple states. 
and the federal and Congress has passed it in the House. After this happened, they passed it in the House last year. But it's an ongoing issue. And after this, when we went to the party, they actually said publicly we made a mistake in 2016. And we know now that we have to do things differently and that these voters, these low-wage worker voters are critical to winning in 2020. And so this is where this brings us with this class and, and with our elections this year, is that um, there is no way to win by in 2020 or beyond. There's no way to win without by ignoring the largest and fastest growing industries in America by saying they largely don't vote. Let's not focus on them. Let's focus on the likely voters, people who typically vote. Let's focus on our donors, which is what Democrats did in the past. Let's focus on, you know, urban areas. Let's focus on places where people have the wherewithal to vote. If you ignore the largest and fastest growing populations, election over election over election, you end up with Donald Trump because restaurant workers largely either don't vote, they feel incredibly disillusioned with both parties, or they vote for Donald Trump because they think he's going to do something different um, or because racially they identify with him as white workers. So there is a, um, there is a need to stop ignoring the fact, you know, when we talked, when Professor Cohen talked about growing inequality, and then I talked about low-wage workers, again, if you don't care about inequality and you don't care about low-wage workers, but you do care about our democracy, there's another reason to care about the growing income inequality, and that is that growing income inequality often precedes fascism, often precedes the ability for our democ democracies to fall apart because large swaths of the population feel disillusioned, disengaged, are disillusioned, are disengaged. In this case, now, often unable to think about voting. They've got two and three jobs or they've, and they're unable to vote. None of these folks are given time off to vote by their employers. None have the ability to actually just say to their employer, I'm not gonna work today, I'm gonna go vote, um, let alone issues of transportation to get to polls or losing their home and therefore not having a mailing address if they're supposed to get a mail-in ballot. Any number of issues for low-wage workers that if we care about the functioning of our democracy, we have to worry about these workers' wages and not just to get them to vote, but then to deliver for them afterwards. Because I will say one thing, there is hope that these, that I, and I'm going to share with you right now, there is a lot of hope that workers are rising up and thinking more about voting right now, low-wage workers. But if they vote and Biden wins and then their wages still don't go up in the years to come, I can tell you it will be much worse than ever because they will feel a sense of disillusionment and abandonment uh, that they have not, that, that I don't think the Democratic Party is anticipating. So the hope is that workers are rising up. Thousands of workers across the country have said they will not go back to work without a full minimum wage. They will not make this impossible choice of being forced to go back for a sub-minimum wage when tips are down so significantly. They refuse to go back. And so as I showed you earlier in the class, this was August 31st, strikes in New York and Chicago. Next week, there are strikes in New York, Chicago, Philly, and DC, and it keeps growing. Um, there's also new consumer support with this no idea of essential workers. There's new employer support. And here's 
to me, one of the biggest indications of our success. This is Nation's Restaurant News. It is the trade magazine for the National Restaurant Association. So this is the NRA. This is the folks that have tried to go after my kids and you know shut us down year after year. They had a leading article saying because of the pandemic, the industry is being forced to rethink what they call the tip credit, what we call the subminimum wage. Even that term, they have coined since 1938 to make it sound positive, a tip credit. Uh, it's a credit for employers that they don't have to pay the wage because there are tips. We don't call it a credit because it makes it sound too positive. It's a subminimum wage. That is what it is. Um, but, but the article is saying that they are having to rethink it and this is, and they cite our research in this article, but this is happening because they're largely unable to get their workers to come back without a full minimum wage. Workers are saying, why would I go back when tips are down 75%? And that can lead to voting. That can lead, if workers are organized and facilitated, that idea, I won't go back without one fair wage, can also help them understand why voting for one person over another person could actually impact their ability to get that wage and thus go back to work, which they do desperately need to go back to work. But whether they vote this fall remains to be seen, you know, remains to be seen. And it really depends on whether, again, the party makes the same mistake uh, and the Biden-Harris campaign makes the same mistake of ignoring these populations, of ignoring these voters, or decides to go all out and focus on this population that now is not a, a marginalized tiny population, but as both Professor Cohen and I have said, is increasingly, increasingly the largest swath of workers in America. We're going from a nation of one in three working poor, one in three people who are working, working and living in poverty, getting closer and closer to one in two. And so we are, we are, we, we cannot afford to ignore these populations anymore. So I'm going to stop and would love to open it up. I haven't had a chance to see questions. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll pull some questions out. That was uh, really comprehensive and outstanding. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, what it just, it makes me think about, and maybe I can get your response to this is just, the, the kind of anemic language that Americans actually have around talking about class and how hard it is for so many of us to talk about class and this kind of delusion that all Americans are somehow middle class when most of us really are not, or are working class in particular. And that the, the dominant political discourse, you know, is such that when we talk about the working class, you know, when CNN talks about the working class, they're talking about white men. They're not talking about you know, women of color working in restaurants. They're talking about white men that used to work in factories. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, how that the kind of, um, in your sense, the, the American language about class and the difficulty of thinking about, like, the, the majority of the American working class are black and brown folks. They're women. I mean, you have just demonstrated that, I think, really quite powerfully. How does the language and the way we talk about class make this project more difficult? Yeah, and what's so... <laughs> ironic about that, the fact that the press is talking about white men when they're talking about working class, but among the largest industry of the working class, the restaurant industry, a lot of white men who work as servers and bartenders do not think of themselves as working class and do not identify with other workers in the restaurant industry. They do not think of themselves as the same class. Now that's not true. I'm sure there's lots of wonderful white men on this Zoom call who worked in the restaurant industry and perhaps think of themselves as working class, but 
in, you know, from thousands of surveys and focus groups with white men in the restaurant industry who tend to have those better, higher tipping server and bartender positions, they do not identify with people of color or women in the kitchen or in, in IHOPs and Denny's. They do not think of themselves as one class. So I think the problem is work, there is no sense of working class solidarity in America. There is no sense of working class solidarity across industry and even within industries. So again, I'm really sorry, Professor Cohen, please stop me if I told this story already. Maybe I did. Um, <laughs> but in Washington, D.C., um, we, so the insanity, the insanity of the last couple of years before the pandemic was that the NRA managed to make it a fight not between these corporate giants and, and the workers. They made it a fight between workers and workers. So what did they do? After 20, in 2016, the National Restaurant Association observed the victory of the Trump campaign. And they saw the Trump campaign's ability to divide working people by race. They thought, that's brilliant. And so they hired the Trump campaign's PR communications firm, Mercury PR, and they set up a campaign called Save Our Tips. They set up a PAC and a campaign called Save Our Tips. John Oliver actually featured this as part of a whole segment he did on AstroTurf groups. AstroTurf, if you don't know what AstroTurf means, so there's the grassroots. It's people it, you know, with limited means rising up, organizing, fighting for change. That's grassroots. AstroTurf is corporate created uh, grassroots, you know, supposedly grassroots campaign. So it's Koch brothers funding the Tea Party. It's in our case the Restaurant Association funding supposedly restaurant workers, although not all of them are workers, to create this pack and this organization called Save Our Tips to spread this me messaging across, especially white male workers, but lots of workers that somehow if they got paid a wage, their tips would go away, and therefore they should fight their own wage increase. And so that happened first in Maine, and then it ha we, where we put this on the ballot. It happened in Washington, D.C., and in an insane couple of years, we had, you know, these ballot measures, which would raise the wage from 2 or $3 to 12 or 15 pass. And then hundreds of mostly white male, some white female workers show up to Democratic legislators and say, overturn this. Drive our wages, please. Back down from 12 and 15 down to 3. Please overturn this. Bring this back down. Based on this messaging from this restaurant association AstroTurf group that their tips would go away if their wages go up. And no amount of data, we brought data from the seven states to show that in fact tipping is higher in San Francisco than it is in any other city in the United States. And tipping is higher in Alaska. Alaska's had one wage for 40 years. Alaska has the highest tipping average of any state in the United States of America. People don't stop People don't tip differently based on what waiters make. Most people don't even know what waiters make. People don't walk into a restaurant and say, how much do you earn? Because that's going to impact how much I tip you. People don't do that. And we know that to be true because tipping is higher in the states that have a full minimum wage. But somehow the restaurant industry spread this fear, this incredibly powerful thing called fear, that tips would go away if wages went up. And it was so vitriolic, these workers would show up at rallies we would have to raise the minimum wage and scream epithets at the women and say, you're lying, there's no sexual harassment, there's no reason to raise the wage, we're all gonna lose our tips. 
And so at one point, based on all of this vitriol, we did a focus group. Did I already share the story? We did a focus group with these white male servers in DC and they didn't know it was us. So it was a, a, a silent, a kind of a private focus, anonymous focus group to say, what is really, where's this opposition coming from? Why do you not want your wages to go up? Do you really think your tips are gonna go away? And in this private focus group, they said, no, we don't like the idea of diner waitresses. We, we are professionals. We make a lot of money in tips, they said. We don't like the idea of diner waitresses, which in our industry is code for women and women of color. We don't like the idea of diner waitresses coming up closer to where we are. We don't like the idea of them getting a $15 wage because we're the professionals. We make a lot of money in tips. We do better than them. And so it comes back to this idea that, you know, emerged in the New York Times after Trump was elected. I know, Professor Cohen, you have issues with this, so we should talk about it, but it was called last place aversion, this idea that, uh, you know, there is this class of white workers who, who may not have much, may not have much economic instability, but the one thing they have is that they, they are better right. off. They are better <laughs> than those black waitresses, those women of color waitresses. Um, and so that's the one thing they want to preserve. I, I was so depressed after this focus group, I called the political director of the AFL-CIO, which is a labor coalition in the United States. And I said, we have this horrible focus group. Is this reflective of what you're finding? And he said, oh yes, when we've been surveying working Americans, white and people of color, the majority of white American working class people are saying they would give up a wage raise or benefits increase if it meant that they could remain better off than people of color. So um, yeah, that, yeah, that is deeply depressing. I think it's also, you know, it is what you're referring to, you know, right, the lack of class solidarity, um, and in particular, the question of whiteness, which is I just this opportunity to sort of think about what we're doing next week. But it's important to think that, you know, that, that uh, W.B. Du Bois in his book, Black Reconstruction, articulates at the end of the, the period of Reconstruction when white workers and newly emancipated black workers had indeed everything economically in common were nonetheless made by the ruling elites, so the, the former plantocracy, split them apart because they were the white people or like the ruling elite white folks in the 1870s were able to spread the boundaries of whiteness and grant it to what had previously been seen as white trash or low class white white folks, at least giving them the claim of whiteness, which made them superior to black people. And this is what Du Bois openly describes as in this book as the psychological wages of whiteness that there's not a financial wage that comes with being white, but a psychological one. And indeed, we're going to be talking about this next week. This is what I want you you're assigned to read next week, which is Dying of Whiteness, which is about what happens to white people when they embrace these conservative political policies um, that, in fact, undermine their own economic security and why white people vote Republican to undermine their, own, their economic viability. Um, and and then, so there's a, this is a subject that we're going to continue on. Um, let me ask you another question. Um, you know, this is, uh, and then I'm going to turn to Karen, but uh, who's got other good questions. But uh, one of them is just if you could talk a little bit more about lobbying and what that is and how that works. The question came up in the chat a number of times of how, what, how does the NRA have so much power? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, this is a, a, a difference between uh, the way that Democrats and people on the left, um, the left of the spectrum engage politically and the way that the right engages politically. There's a huge difference. And one of the major differences is that 
uh, Democrats and people on the left, you know, a lot of the machinery and the, the I want to say the pundits, the ruling class among the Democrats is to, it, you know, a lot of it is about voting. It's about voting, 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 vote, 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 everybody vote. That's it. That's all you need to do is just vote. And on the right, they don't think of political influence every two years or every four years. They're in front of legislators every single day with their people. They are on Capitol Hill. They are in state legislatures every single day. It is about not just getting people into office, but holding them accountable. It is about uh, getting people out of office. It is about making your voices and your faces heard. And that is the power of the Rifle Association. That is the power of AARP. That is the power of the National Restaurant Association. They bring out the restaurant owners in hordes and they make legislators, Democrats and Republicans, feel that their favorite restaurants are at risk. If they happen to want to care about workers, they will talk about, they will trot out the black owned restaurant in you know, Harlem. There was a very famous black owned restaurant in Harlem that came out against you know, one fair wage because of the power of the restaurant association. They, they brought that restaurant owner and they said, this is who you're gonna, this is who you're gonna impact. You're, they don't bring out Applebee's and IHOP. That's not who goes and speaks to the legislators. They'll bring the small person of color owned restaurant from wherever and say, don't you dare raise wages. I'll go out of business. And then you can't come to Sylvia's in Harlem anymore. And wouldn't that be devastating? You know, that, that's gonna be horrible. So um, that, that's what they do. They have a very, they have a program where they focus on lobbying. But I, I think it's so important to note also the, 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 the money, the money that they pour, you know, you think it comes from the capitalists and it doesn't always come from the capitalists. So in the case of the National Restaurant Association, they have a $97 million war chest every year that they use for lobbying. That $97 million war chest, you would think, comes from Applebee's, IHOP, McDonald's, all these people paying their dues to the National Restaurant Association. Oh no. The NRA wholly owns a company called ServeSafe. And every worker in every county, including in Berkeley, is required to get food handler training. And they all are sent by their local county to go get training by ServeSafe. Most workers have no idea when they pay for food handler training, which they think is coming from the government, that they're in fact paying a trade lobby that is lobbying against their own interests. So any of you who ever gotten food handler training through SurfSafe, you have funded the National Restaurant Association. That's what they use to lobby against workers' interests. So in a lot of cases, these trade lobbies, they have a lot of money that's not necessarily coming from the capitalists, it's coming somehow from us, <laughs> from workers. And then they use it and they're, they, they're there every single day, every single day, putting forward the voices and faces of the most, you know, um, sympathetic restaurant, small business restaurant owner to convince Congress that, um, that, uh, that, that they should maintain the subminimum wage. I want to say one more thing about lobbying that will illustrate this. The, the other thing, though, is, it's, is they, they, they fund people's campaigns. Let's be real. This is about funding both Democrat and Republicans' campaigns. It's out-and-out out bribery. It is bribery. Um, and so one, and, and this is why 
elected officials on both sides of the aisle have turned the other cheek when it comes to the restaurant association. So a few years ago, uh, the, um, Senate, the, Sen the Senate Health Committee, uh, when we started presenting data and saying, these are not you know, highly paid tipped workers. These are mostly women. These are single mothers. They're struggling to get by. Um, the Senate Health Committee told me, oh, can you, can you send me that data? So we sent them all this government data. It's by the way, it's employer reported payroll data that shows these workers are the poorest workers in America. And they said, oh, this is so funny because Restaurant Association just came in here and we asked them to present some data to what they said. They said tipped workers in America make $18 minimum an hour with tips, minimum. And we said, please present us with some data. And they submitted a letter on Restaurant Association letterhead that said our workers earn $18 an hour minimum with tips. That is the kind of proof, evidence, data that Democrats and Republicans have wholly accepted for decades from the Restaurant Association. So, and that comes from funding people's campaigns. I don't know if I answered your question well. No, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it, this kind of financial deregulation that comes with uh, neoliberalism, part of that is uh, lifting caps on campaign contributions to political campaigns. It just unleashed uh, corruption and pay-to-play politics as part of the deregulatory framework. Um, let me, uh, so one thing I will say is your naming ServeSafe has got folks shook. They're like, oh my God, I did that. So like that's kind of coming through up in the chat. But let me turn to Karen and she will pull a draw a student question out. Uh, please, Karen. Uh, hi, I see a question from Mason. Mason, do you want to ask a question? So the the question that I had, obviously we're talking about neoliberalism and lobbying and all that kind of situation and uh, white supremacy, all that kind of uh, mingled together. But my question is like, how do you fight against this lobbying when you know, as you said, they won't listen to facts, they won't listen to reason, they won't listen to you. Yeah, um, it's a great question. Uh, and, and it's not about listening to me, you know, ultimately, it's about listening to their constituents and masses of people that they ultimately feel like they have to respond to. So we're going to talk about this in two weeks, but my answer is organizing. Like, you know, you organize the people most affected to take on the electeds to, um, you know, not just lobby, but show up in front of their offices with rallies, vote, the, you know, say they're going to vote them out of office, hold them accountable, expose them for siding with the restaurant association. It's only through that kind of people power that I've ever seen um, people with limited means be able to overcome the ridiculous money and power of these trade lobbies, of, of lobbies in general that represent the elites. That's the only way. And, it, and there's been plenty of successful examples. I mean, the fight for 15 did leave out tipped workers, but it, it, it's extraordinary that in a matter of five to seven years, what was thought as ridiculous, a $15 minimum wage became the law in at least a dozen states. That is extraordinary and it shows the power of working people striking organizing pushing on their legislators um, turning the impossible into the necessary and the real and the doable not just the doable but the must doable because uh, because of their people power because of their organizing so in 
I think the answer is look at what they do. They essentially organize. They bring they bring employers all day, every day to meet with their legislators. They have a lot more money to do it. They have a lot more resources to do it. But when workers are able to do the same thing and lift up their voices and in some cases have a louder voice and get unlikely allies, and in, in our case, unlikely allies include employers, other employers. When you're able to divide the opposition and you're able to amass your forces, that's how you win. And I'm going to walk through all of that as fast as I can in two weeks when we go through social movements and organizing and campaigns. But it, I just want to say it is possible. It's not about fact versus fact. I think that's where people get hung up because facts are only as powerful as the person who's delivering them and whether they get heard. And they won't get heard without the power of the people. Uh, you'll you'll have to forgive me for just ask, uh, adding on a quick follow-up. Because you're talking about grassroots efforts and people talking to the people they know, especially when it comes to the service and restaurant industry, do you have um, sources so that people like me can go out and point the, uh, the people we know in the service and restaurant industry toward these, uh, these information? Absolutely. Um, you can go to our, way, our webpage, onefairwage.com com or onefairwage.com or we have a facebook page service workers united for power service workers united for power um either of those please all right last question karen okay hi uh, dominic do you want to ask your question hi thank you um i had a quick question uh regarding uh the new proposition on the ballot for california that addresses um lyft and uber uh, i see a direct parallel between the restaurant industry and the uh, aggressive maneuvers by Lyft and Uber to keep their employees as independent contractors. Um, I know in an effort earlier this year, uh, Lorena Gonzalez put forth a, a, a prop called AB5 in the assembly, um, which had some unintended consequences for musicians like myself and a couple other uh, groups. But I see now that Lyft and Uber are trying to unpack the entire situation by adding this proposition. Um, I'm just curious uh, what you see about these correlations between your cause and that cause. You're so intuitive, Dominic, and so smart because without knowing it, you actually named something that behind the scenes was very real. Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, Two years ago, they saw this amazing boondoggle that the Restaurant Association got of essentially discounting workers' wages by the amount of tips that they earn, and they decided to copy it. So Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart all started reducing the amount of compensation workers got from the company by how much they were getting in tips. They essentially took the same idea and, and put it into the, into the gig space. And then the New York Times had a big expose early 2019 saying, did you know that your DoorDash delivery worker gets cut? Every time you tip them, their payment gets cut. So that, that tip essentially goes to the company. And, and that was, you know, an enormous, uh, it, you know, DoorDash said, no, we'll stop doing that. But of course, with these independent, with an independent contractor situation, you don't actually know what you're getting paid, what you're getting paid in tips, what you're paying, get paying compensation because there's no pay stub, there's no transparency, there's no clarity as to what you're getting in terms of compensation. But we know, what we know behind the scenes is that they continue to want to do this. 
So AB5 was an attempt to say, you, you have to treat your workers like employees. You have to pay them the minimum wage. In California, we don't allow for sub-minimum wages. And therefore, Uber Lyft, you will not be able to do this anymore. And they have pushed back by putting this ballot measure. They've spent more money on this ballot measure than any ballot measure in the history of the United States of America. Because they are so invested in not treating these workers as employees in not paying their workers a wage, basically. And the ballot measure would result in a sub-minimum wage for, in, for, for Uber and Lyft. I mean, the, if you calculate what the ballot measure would result in for Uber and Lyft drivers, it, was, it would result in a sub-minimum wage for those, for those folks. So um, it is an as long as we let the restaurant industry do this, other industries are gonna try to copy it. It's, you know, it, it seems so great not pay our workers, let the customers pay their wages. So we've got to stop it everywhere. And I hope uh, you all will think about that when you're voting for this um, ballot measure in November. We are out of time. So happy to continue this conversation online. Um, thanks everybody, we'll see you on Monday.